Hi friends, welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Today is day two or section two of our atonement supplemental. And last time we were talking about how we usually look at the atonement of Jesus Christ as a punishment substitution model. And this is based on Augustine and his ideas of original guilt, original sin, Anselm and his idea of offending God's honor, and John Calvin and his idea of God's wrath, our total depravity, and the courtroom judgment of God. It's honestly a pretty bleak image. And you may be thinking, but if that's not true, why do so many scriptures describe a penalty substitution model of the atonement? Here's the thing. They don't. The early church had no concept of God imputing the guilt of our sins to Christ. It's just not, it's not there for thousands of years. And Jesus in our place bearing the punishment we deserve. It's just not a part of the, the early teaching. When you read the scriptures and you see penalty substitution, when you see him being punished for our guilt, what you are noticing is a psychological phenomenon called priming. It goes like this. If I gave you a list of words and asked you to fill in the last word, what would you say? Here, let's try it. Towel, shower, shampoo. And the last word is S-O blank P. Can you think of a word? Okay, how about now? Try it again. Bread, juice, milk, S-O blank P. Now, it may be a little easier in written form than in spoken form, but probably what happened for you is the last word you filled in on the first list was soap. Towel, shower, shampoo, soap. And on the second one, bread, juice, milk, soup. Now, like this idea of priming is not a magic bullet for marketing or social engineering, but it is real. And it's not just about guessing words. It also affects behavior. In one priming study, students who did a task in a room that smelled clean were much more likely to clean up than those that did a task in a neutrally smelling room. Priming has been used to help people maintain their diets. It's been used to help people break their diets. It's been used to influence how much money people pay on their real debt, how it influences how they use their actual hard-earned money. And here's why it's important to this conversation. You've been raised in a Calvinist cultural setting for reading the atonement uh, in the scriptures. You've been primed with a courtroom, individual sins, suffering, payment, debt, individual drops of blood, purity, obedience, worthiness, judgment. And we come out with reading of an atonement where Jesus gets absolutely wrecked and it's my fault and I'm never going to be good enough. And it's so anxious and depressing and shame-ridden. It's not hopeful at all. Like, this is good news? This is the gospel? What if there was a different way to look at Jesus' redemptive work? What if there was a completely different list of words, concepts, and ideas that could prime our reading of Gethsemane, Golgotha, and the tomb? Well, guess what? There is. There are radically different ways to look at Christ's suffering and death. In fact, it's how people thought about Jesus' death for thousands of years before Calvin came along and made everything so dang depressing. Are you curious? Well, come along with me because it is amazing. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. Understanding the atonement differently will change your life. 
So to get this fresh slash ancient view of Christ's atonement, we have to rewind back to Anselm's time, back to before he wrote the book that influenced Calvin, back to 1054. In 1054, there really was only one Christian church, but it wasn't really uniform. There were many variations, but there were two major branches of Christianity that roughly divided geographically east and west. This theological division also mirrored some political and linguistic divisions too. The the western branch from Poland west to uh, Portugal and England and the east, well, east of that, <laughs> covering Russia and the Byzantine Empire, including Turkey and the Balkans. In the west, they mostly worshipped uh, in Latin, and in the east, they mostly worshipped in Greek. And two kind of v- different empires, the um, Holy Roman Empire and the Byzantine Empire right there is kind of the dividing line, right? So in addition to some of these variations... They were nominally at least one Catholic, which means a universal church. But the adherents in different locations saw things very differently. First, there was this idea of ecclesiastical structure. In the West, they saw the authority of the Bishop of, of Rome, the Pope, as absolute authority. But in the East, they believed that the church should be run by a council of equal bishops each representing one of the major uh, church centers. And honestly, who could blame them for not wanting to have sole authority rest with the Bishop of Rome? At the time, there had been a string of popes who were infamous for mistresses, assassinations, and corruption. Here's just one example from uh, their recent time period. Pope Stephen the, the Sixth had his predecessor, Pope Formosus, exhumed, tried, defingered, briefly reburied, and then thrown into the Tiber. Pope John XII um, (laughs) gave land to a mistress, murdered several people, and was killed by a man who caught him in bed with his wife. So, yeah, I'm not surprised that those in the East didn't want to be single-handedly ruled by that guy. Moreover, Christians in the East believed some different things than the Western counterparts. In the West, they believed that priests should be celibate. While in the East, they believed that priests could marry. In the West, they believed that the Trinity was the same substance, meaning God, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost were all the same substance. While in the East, they believed that they were three distinct beings, the Son coming from the Father and the Holy Spirit being sent from the Father, very similar to what we believe. The West believed in Augustine's misguided notion of original sin, while in the East they believed that humans were formed in the image of God and God has not created anything evil, they said. The West believed that you came to know God through rational scholasticism, meaning in the West they believed in a careful analytical study to come to know God, but in the East they believed that you could only come to know God by experiencing God. The West believed in purgatory and hell, while in the East they they simply believed that the absence of God's presence was what you would consider hell. But most important for our discussion, they saw the atonement of Jesus Christ in a very different light. All these differences came to a head in 1054 when the Bishop of Rome excommunicated the Patriarch of Constantinople. 
the, the patriarch retaliated by excommunicating the Pope and the church split right there. And basically the, the churches didn't talk to each other again for about a thousand years until 1965 when they formally met again. The Western branch became known as the Catholic Church and the Eastern branch became known as the Orthodox Church. Now, since the majority of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints came personally or ancestrally from a Western church tradition, we're largely unfamiliar with the Eastern branch doctrines. And I'm telling you, one view that is crucial for us to understand is how they view Christ's redemptive work. Their interpretation dates back well before Anselm and way, way back before Calvin. I think as you read about it, you'll be like, nah, that sounds like what I believe. Read, listen, however you want to do it. Anyways, so let's start with the Eastern Orthodox view of our heavenly parents. Where those in the Calvinist tradition see God as a wrathful parent just looking to whip you, like literally take off the belt and just whip you at the slightest provocation. The Eastern branch of Christianity starts with this one plain assumption about God. God is love. 1 John 4, 8. That is the beginning, the middle, and the end for them. Everything else is primed and filtered through that essential lens. Why the earth was created, how he interacts with his children, the purpose of Christ's redemptive work, the function of judgment day, all stems from the fact that God is love. It's not just one singular attribute that is balanced. It is who he is and all other things flow from and are born in light of the fact that God is love. So with that fact being true, let's talk about Adam and Eve for a minute. Starting back with Augustine, blah, the Christian uh, assumption in the Western world was that because of Adam and Eve, we are born with the taint of original sin. And John Calvin just carried this one step further with the claim that we are completely depraved and therefore more or less despised by God. Now, as Latter-day Saints, we clearly don't believe this. We don't believe that we are all culpable for Adam and Eve, nor do we carry any inherent stain just by being humans. This is also true for the Eastern branch of the church. The Orthodox Church do not believe in original sin. In fact, they believe that since each person is created in the image of God, each person is called to theosis. That means the fulfillment of creation in becoming like God, in becoming God's. Come on now, we're all over that. And Doctrine and Covenants 132, 37, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have entered into their exaltation according to the promises and sit on thrones and are not angels, but are gods. And this rings true. The purpose of God's creation for the Eastern Orthodox Church and for Latter-day Saints is to assist his children in becoming as he is, in becoming God's. Yes, that's good stuff. However, this does not mean that those in the Orthodox branch don't believe in sin. Um, and it doesn't mean that, they don't, that sin doesn't significantly affect us. So let's talk about the idea of sin a little bit. First, we need to back up and define what sin literally is because we've read so much into that word and it carries so much of our assumptions and so, many cultural, so much cultural baggage. So when we say the word sin, we have images, feelings, and assumptions. 
with what sin means, and they aren't all necessarily true. So let's start at the beginning. When sin is used in the Old Testament, the word in Hebrew is transliterated as cha, and it simply means to miss the mark or to miss the path. You could think of it as failure to meet a goal. That's it. What we are saying is that we are created to become gods, and we missed that. According to the Eastern interpretation, the reason we have missed the path and got lost is because although we are not born sinful, we're born into a world where sin exists. Moses six fifty four and fifty six says basically the same thing, and it's part of the human condition to find some things which miss the mark to be attractive. Most of the time,、uh, they would say it's because our hearts and our minds are not in alignment. We'd say our our spirits want one thing, but the natural man or ego, pride, our mind, claims that other things will actually make us happy and are justified. This division between our our mind and our heart, our spirit and our our bodies, this division makes us susceptible to temptation, and these actions cause us not to fulfill our potential as image bearers of God, created in His image to become like Him and to bear light to the world. Now, because of this view of God, Eastern Orthodox Christians don't see punishment for sin the same way that those in the West see punishment for sin, with its ultimate outcome of a burning hell. Instead, they align with the ancient teaching of Saint John of Damascus, which teaches God does not punish, but each one decides on receiving of God, whose reception is joy. And his absence, a hell. This is basically what Paul teaches in his letters: that humans are punished by their sins more than they're punished for their sins. To to walk away from God to sin is by definition death. Death is the realm of not God. So, like, if I pull the plug on my own life support system, the result is death. No one else is killing me. If I jump off a roof after being warned by my mother not to, and I end up breaking my leg, does that mean my mother broke my leg? No, it's the simple result of my own choice. So, this view that God is not looking to actively punish us, but rather is willing to allow our decisions to bear the full weight of consequence, and that full weight. Is called his wrath. This is the idea that God's wrath is simply letting us get the consequences of our decision. That it's not that God is angry and wanting to burn us in hell. He's not wanting to punish us. God's wrath is simply letting us to get the consequence of our decisions. So restoration texts talk about this all over the place. Check out what it says in Doctrine and Covenants seventy six. Which might be our most complete view of the afterlife we have anywhere. Here's what it says about hell and the suffering, the wrath of God.、It、says in section in verse one hundred five. These are they who suffer the vengeance of eternal fire. And you could even cross reference that with、um, Doctrine and Covenants nineteen that says eternal here does not mean never ending, but rather the quality of that that condition. It's a godlike condition. It's a big condition. It's a complete condition. These are they who are cast down to hell and suffer the wrath of the Almighty God until the fullness of times, when Christ shall have subdued all enemies under His feet and shall have perfected His work. 
Now, you might have read that and you're like, yeah, that's exactly what I thought. Like, when we sin, the punishment is hell and God's wrath is there to punish us. And that seems to go exactly against what I'm claiming. But notice still in section 76 that the wrath of God and hell is simply allowing you to be with Satan. Verse 84, these are they who are thrust down to hell. These are they who shall not be redeemed from the devil until the last resurrection, until the Lord, even Christ the Lamb, shall have finished his work. So, listen, the wrath of God is simply, if you don't want to be with God, he won't force you to be with him. And the consequence of that is that instead you get to hang out with Satan and he sucks. That's, that's, a, that's as wrathful as God gets right there. It's, this idea is also consistent with how punishment and wrath is described in the Book of Mormon. Check out Ether 14.24 about the Jaredites. It says, Nevertheless, Shiz did not cease to pursue Coriantumr, for he had sworn to avenge himself upon Coriantumr for the blood of his brother, who had been slain. And the word of the Lord came to Ether that Coriantumr should not fall by the sword. And thus we see that the Lord did visit them in the fullness of his wrath and their wickedness and their abominations had prepared a way for their everlasting destruction. And it came to pass that Shiz did pursue Coriantumr eastward, even unto the borders of the seashore, and he gave them battle into Shiz for the space of three days. There's nothing there about God actively punishing them. The wrath of God here is simply that they get to experience the goop they've stewed. The, the full weight of their wickedness and abominations, their war, their infighting, all of this. God's like, okay, do you want that? Fine. That's his wrath. Thus we see that the Lord did visit them in the fullness of his wrath. No lightning bolts, no active punishment. He's just saying, hey, that's what you want. Here you go. Or check out this one. And you can see this theme all over the place. But Helaman 4 verse 13. And because of their great wickedness and their boasting in their own strength, they were left in their own strength. Therefore, they did not prosper, but were afflicted and smitten and driven before the Lamanites until they had lost possession of almost all their lands. That's it. Because of their boasting in their own strength, they're left to their own strength. The wrath of God is just leaving you to the results. You are, again, in this view, punished by your sins instead of for your sins. And the ultimate result of missing the mark is what you see in 2 Nephi chapter 9, verse 7. He says, Wherefore it must needs be an infinite atonement. Save it should be an infinite atonement, this corruption, this fallen body that will die, could not put on incorruption, a resurrected state. Wherefore the first judgment which came upon man, meaning death, that's the first judgment, the ultimate result of not having God is death, right there, right? The first judgment which came upon man must have remained to an endless duration. You would have died forever. And if so, the flesh must have laid down to rot and crumble to the mother earth and rise no more. Oh, the wisdom of God, his mercy and great grace. For behold, if the flesh should rise no more, our spirits must become subject to that angel who fell from before the presence of the eternal God and became the devil to rise no more. And our spirits must have become like him and we will become devils, angels to a devil, to be shut out from the presence of God and remain with the father of lies and misery like unto himself. Basically, uh, if 
if there is no atonement, the ultimate result is death. We don't fulfill our destiny of becoming like God and we hang out with Satan and that stinks. Got it? So here's what we're saying. We live in a world where things that are not godlike are attractive to us. These practices and habits separate us from who we really are. Children of God, made to bear his image to the world, made to become as he is, made to be caretakers of this world, earth and emissaries of light. And since we, we practice things that separate us from this light, the result is separation. It's death. Where we'll also be with those who also missed the path. And some of those missed the path big time. Think Lucifer here. And the result of that separation is misery. Or you want to think of it as spirit prison. Or you can even use the word hell here if you want any of those. It's just the separation from God is the consequence of our decision. So let's be super clear here. The problem for us in his Latter-day Saints as seen through this lens, isn't that we're dirty, depraved creatures and this makes God mad. It's not that there's some debt that needs to be paid. The problem is that we're created to be gods, but our learning and progress are stymied by living in a world where missing the mark is attractive, where our egos or our natural man or woman finds outlets that are not in sync with divinity where entropy and ultimately death reigns, separating us seemingly permanently from all the possibilities of growth and transformation. So God asks, what is needed? How can I help the, them overcome death so that my children can continue to learn, progress, and become who they are meant to be? What is needed? A rescue. A prison break. Power to become. Enter Jesus. Now through the, this lens, Jesus does not enter to be abused. He enters to rescue. Now already, doesn't that feel more noble and less full of shame? He is here to help us be what we are meant to, always meant to be. It's a big thing to be a supernatural being, a creator in the chaos. And so he's here to help us because we didn't quite make it and that's okay. You can visualize this act like an action movie. When team members get caught behind enemy lines and thrown into a stark third world prison, suffering and scared, what does the hero do? He finds a way to get in there and bust them out. That's Jesus. So how does Jesus get in there? Well, step one is he enters fully into the chaos, pain, sickness, beauty, complexity, and joy of mortality. Gregory of Nazarenesus, a fourth century bishop and theologian in the East wrote, that which is not assumed is not redeemed. So Jesus enters into all of mortality from birth to death, everything in between from loneliness, zits, rejection, suffering, all of it. 
That is what's being talked about in the Book of Mormon when Nephi is trying to understand his father's vision of the path to the tree of life, the path to God, the path to who we are all meant to be. He prays and the angel says, Knowest thou the condescension of God? And when Nephi says, I know God loves me, then he gives him some more information. And he shows Nephi a vision of a virgin bearing a child in her arms. In other words, according to the Book of Mormon, Christ's condescension, his mission of rescue, is not limited to the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross at Golgotha. Jesus' redemption of us begins at birth. At birth, it begins this journey and lasts years until he completely enters into every aspect of mortality. It's not about him suffering for us. It's about him suffering with us. It is about God himself becoming human. King Benjamin talks about it this way in Mosiah chapter 3. For behold, the time cometh and is not far distant that with power the Lord omnipotent who reigneth, who was and is from all eternity to all eternity shall come down from heaven among the children of men and shall dwell in a tabernacle of clay. He's, he's going to live in a body like we have. And he's going to go forth amongst men showing us what God God's people do, right? What his children do, working mighty miracles, healing the sick, raising the dead, causing the lame to walk, the blind to receive their sight and the deaf to hear, curing all manner of diseases, shall cast out devils or the evil spirits which dwell in the hearts of the children of men. And as that's going on, he shall suffer temptations, pain of body, hunger, thirst and fatigue, even more than man can suffer, except it be unto death. For behold, blood cometh from every poor, so great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and abominations of his people. And he shall be called Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and earth, the creator of all things from the beginning, and his mother shall be called Mary. Notice how Benjamin teaches that, that God comes down to fully experience mortality and full, fills the full weight of anguish for where we are falling short, not as punishment, but in empathy. He does it as part of his mission to bring order to chaos. He walks in a tabernacle of clay, healing, raising, lifting, bringing light, and filling the full weight of mortality, including hunger, thirst, and fatigue. Alma also talks about Christ's complete absorption in mortality in Alma 7. He says, And behold, the Son of God shall be born of Mary at Jerusalem, and he shall go forth. Notice this is in the natural course of life suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. And this that the word might be fulfilled, which saith he will take upon him the pains and sicknesses of the people. Again, he takes on full mortality and by doing so takes on what you and I take on. And he will take upon him death. And we're going to talk about this aspect of mortality in a detail in a bit. But this is the ultimate bit of mortality, this death. It's ultimate mortality. And he does this that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people. And he will take upon him their infirmities that his bowels may be filled with mercy. 
according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their firmities. Now the, the Spirit knoweth all things. Nevertheless, the Son of God suffereth according to the flesh that he might take upon him the sins of his people, that he might blot out their transgressions according to the power of his deliverance. So according to Alma, Jesus takes on all aspects of mortality, even and especially death, so that he knows how to help you. He doesn't do it as a punishment for what you screwed up, but rather so he knows exactly what you need to take the next step on your journey of becoming what you're meant to be. It's a completely different view. We have, thanks to Anselm and Calvin, defined the problem in terms of debt, honor, courtroom, and guilt. But what if that's not even the problem at all? What if we start from the same facts, but with a very different assumption about those facts? See, for those in the Orthodox tradition, sin is a a problem, but it's not because it incurs a debt, wrath, or guilt. Sin's a problem because it misses the mark. Sin literally, like we've said before, means to miss the mark. We are made to bear the image of God, and we don't. We miss the mark. But Calvin has interpreted that to mean that God is angry and that there is a need for some debt to be paid because we didn't do it. Imagine it like this. You have your cute little toddler learning how to swim. You know, still squishy and baby fat, saying the most ridiculously cute things, and so excited to be big and swim like dad. Heck, Dad and the toddler even have matching swim trunks. It's really fun. This swimming lesson is the foundation for future surf trips, wakeboarding and cliff jumping at Lake Powell, whitewater rafting adventures, so much potential. So in the course of this lesson, the toddler gets placed in the deep end of the pool and their objective is to swim to the side. But they don't. It's a hot, panicked, disorganized mess right from the start. So dad leaps in and saves him. Simple as that. And when he does, there's nobody screaming from the side of the pool that since the toddler hasn't swum uh, to the edge, that that lap must be swum or justice will not have been met. Nobody is yelling that there needs to be a price paid because the swimmer didn't make it. The whole argument is so absurd, it's ludicrous. But listen, that is exactly what we have done with this story. Jesus comes not to pay a debt. Jesus comes to save us, period. Does that mean there's no value in the pool experience? No, don't be stupid. We still want to go surfing and have adventures, but pay attention. You are not in the pool to swim so many laps or check things off, or you're not going to pass. You are in the pool to learn to swim so you can do greater things. If you do nothing in the pool, you won't be able to cliff jump. If you fight the lifeguard, she'll just wait till you wear yourself out, and then she'll pull you to safety. The point is to learn to swim, and it's going to take a while. Now, this also does say something pretty big about our heavenly parents. They are not suburban helicopter parents. They are completely comfortable with you flailing in the deep end. We don't like that idea because we don't like to be uncomfortable. We want the temperature to always be at 72 degrees and we want to sit and stream entertainment. But God's not about that action, Captain. 
He'll throw you in. He'll let you flail. He'll coach you. And he will save you. So to recap, for Calvin and most of the Western church, the problem is that we have created a debt and there must be punishment for there to be justice, quid pro quo, payment for debt. For us as Latter-day Saints and for Orthodox Christians, the problem is not what we have done. The problem is what we are. We are made to be gods. Then God said, let us make humankind in our own image according to our own likeness. You remember that? But we're not like him. Sin is not a problem because it creates debt. Sin is a problem because it misses the mark of who we are to become. And death is a result of this divine distortion. We didn't make it to the edge of the pool. We are built to be gods, but we are mortal. Where God is eternal, we are finite. Where he is love, we are selfish. Where he is creative, we are destructive. Mortality is the problem. Death is the problem. Separation from God is the problem. For us, the problem is not about what we do as much as it is about what we are. We long for home. We feel a homesickness for something greater. Every single one of us feels it. So God came to rescue us. We're we're broken, we're sick, we're distorted because we're not divine as we were meant to be. But there's a small spark of divinity still in us. And we feel it. We stand in need of repair. And death is the ultimate chasm between us and the immortal God. Orthodox theologian John Zizilaus puts it this way. In the West, Catholic and Protestant has viewed the problem of the world as a moral problem, transgression of a commandment and punishment and has made the cross of Christ the epicenter of faith and worship. However, orthodoxy continues to insist upon the resurrection as the center of the whole life, precisely because it sees that the problem of the created is not moral, but ontological. Ontological means the way you are being. It is the problem of existence, not the beauty of the world. It's the problem of death, end quote. All right, so, so back to the story. How does Jesus deal with this problem? He enters fully in huma- into humanity like we've talked about. And according to Orthodox Christianity, Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. From his mortal mother, he inherited full mortality. He felt everything we feel because he is 100% mortal. Pain, sickness, thirst, fatigue, hunger, joy, sorrow, love, passion, wonder, all of it. And from his divine, literal father, he received the capacity to leave death after entering its gates, to resurrect, live again, conquer, and set us free. This unique dual nature is bound together at his birth and sets him on a path to know us and therefore be able to judge what we most need and be able to, through his divinity, provide what is most needed. This included entering into the human proclivity for violence. Christ enters fully into humanity, including a cruel, violent death. The terror of violence is defeated along with death. God avoided nothing in his quest to reunite with humanity and rekindle that spark of divinity within us. Tony Jones says that. Along the way, he also taught us how to swim. 
His teachings, if we actually read them, are much less about obedience. The Pharisees are the obedient ones in this story. And much more about being present enough in real life to be a light. But, like we said before, the biggest problem is death. Death is a problem because God is immortal and divine and we are mortal and learning. We're hedged in by our mortality and are always impending death. It's what defines us. It's what separates us from God. The problem is death, not guilt. So, so Jesus engineered his death. He nonstop needled and provoked the powers to be until they found a way to murder him. And listen, this is important. Twin, 12th century Russian Orthodox theologian from the East, Georgis Florovsky, wrote, the death on the cross was effective not as the death of an innocent one, but as the death of the incarnate Lord. See, we talk so much about Jesus being perfect and innocent because we are looking at the story through a framework of debt. But when you look at it through a framework of becoming, you see what is important that is, he, is that he is God, entering fully into the whole experience of mortality, even and especially the complete lack of God that is death. So death and its resultant separation from God and subsequent association with Satan, that is the main problem. In the fourth century, Eastern Church father Gregory of Nyssa made an analogy to fishing. He says, death swallowed Jesus, uh, the bait, but hidden under Jesus's human flesh, thus um, was a hook, his divinity. The deity was hidden under the veil of our nature. So that as the ravenous fish death swallowed the hook, the deity might be gulped down along with the bait of flesh and thus life being introduced into the house of death, a light shining in darkness that is diametrically opposed to light and light uh, and life might vanish, that the darkness might vanish. For it is not in the nature of darkness to remain when light is present or of death to exist when life is active. Put, to put it another way, Jesus' human birth clothed his divinity in a veil of mortality and gave him the power to die. And Jesus' death gives him the ability to descend directly into the universal human experience of death, the final consequence of sin, where now, Shorn of his mortal covering, he could unbosom his divine light and life into that awful chasm of death to overpower the darkness and death that reigned there. By sharing in our mortality and death, Christ became connected with us in such a way that we can now share in his divinity and resurrection. Jesus' resurrection enables our resurrection and effectively destroys the one major obstacle standing between us and our immortal divine potential. He destroys death. He resurrects. He comes back from the dead. Doctrine and Covenants 76, when Joseph Smith sees Jesus, he says, this is the testimony, last of all, most important of anything that we give, that he lives. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most well-attested events in the ancient world. It happens. It happened. Jesus was dead. Uh, he, then he wasn't. He had a body and then he was dead. And then he had a body again, except this body, it could eat 
It could eat fish and honey comb. It could make fires. But it could also like fly and teleport through walls. When he was alive, he was human, so tired he could sleep through a storm on a boat. And then he was resurrected and divine. There are hundreds of witnesses. And this idea that Jesus came back to life is the main crux of the message of Christianity. That is why his following exploded over the next several centuries. People had taught things like he had taught before. People had done miracles like he had done before. But the fact that he was dead and then he was alive and glorified, resurrected, and promised us that we would rise again, that changes absolutely everything. That's amazing. All right, we're going to pause here and pick up the story next time, but tuck that away, okay? Jesus enters into death and resurrects. What does that mean for you? See you next time.